2019, a white woman in Austin, Texas, signed up for a diversity training seminar in the hopes of better understanding growing polarization in America. But that workshop, in her view, was itself divisive. And she went on to publish an essay about it, ending with a call for others to reach out to her with their own experiences. And soon got a letter from a Black man across the country, which has resulted in a years-long conversation on race. Jennifer Richmond is a China scholar and international relations specialist. Wingfield Twyman Jr. is a writer and former law professor. Their new book is Letters in Black and White, a new correspondence on race in America. Jennifer Richmond and Wingfield Twyman Jr. are my guests today on Lean Out. Wink, Jen, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks, Dara. It's nice Thank to be you. Here. Thank you for having us. So great to have you both on the program. I, as you know, heard about your book from the filmmaker Eli Steele, and I think I started reading it the same day. <laughs> and <laughs> Wink, at a recent event with Eric Smith from Free Black Thought, you said you immediately recognized Jen as a kindred spirit. That's how I felt about both of you reading your letters. Mm. So it's so nice to have you on. Oh, it's great to be here. It's a wonderful opportunity. I want to start today with the essay, Jen, that sparked this project and this friendship and this new way of of talking and thinking about race. Jen, tell us, just to set up the conversation, about the workshop in Austin that inspired your 2019 essay, Diversity Dropout. Yeah. I, I had started to write about and worry about issues around polarization in America. Let me back up and just let you know, I am—I started life professionally as a, a China scholar and still can identify as such. And it was that knowledge of what authoritarianism looked like and what I saw trends in the United States and trends that were coming through in our polarization that really had me concerned. So I started to research these these various trends. And as I did so, what I came to realize that race was one of the big polarizing wedge issues. And my specialty, as I said, I'm a China scholar. My specialty is not race. It's not even necessarily American history, although I'd like to think that I'm knowledgeable about American history. So I thought to myself, well, if, if, if there's obviously something I've missed and I wanted to get up on the conversation. And so I signed up voluntarily, I didn't, it was not uh, forcefully. So I signed up for the city of Austin had a diversity training program, two day, full day program. And I went in with this genuine search for knowledge, search for wanting to hear voices that weren't my own. And just again, a, a completely open heart. And this is, mind you, this is before 2020. This is before George Floyd. So this is before the whole DEI industry really exploded. And there wasn't a lot of talk about D. I mean, it was it was starting to come out, but you know, a lot of the negative ramifications from for DEI hadn't really started to erupt. So I went in there again, open heart, and I was so sorely disappointed. There was absolutely no opportunity for me to talk to people who looked differently or had different life experiences for me. We were spoken to, and we were really the 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 subject was not diversity as I know it at least, 
it was about whiteness. And so there's so many stories about what what happened within this training, but I'll just start with this one. What happened was we had to take a privilege test and we got a privilege score at the end of this test. After we got our privilege score, we literally had to hold up our scores on our chest. Now, remember, I'm a China scholar. This is the kind of stuff that happened in the Cultural Revolution, where you literally had you know, placards around your neck identifying you as you know, traitor, whatever, running dog of capitalism, if it were in the Cultural Revolution. And we were told to be very quiet and to line up with our scores. And to me, this was just, I love diversity. I love, I, I love America. Yeah, that's why I got involved with polarization. I wanted to know more because I felt that we had such a great foundational values. Do we mess up all the time, every day? But our foundational values, I really believed in, particularly coming from someone who studied other countries and other government uh, values and mores. And so I was just so disappointed because this to me was segregating. And that is what led me to write Diversity Dropout. And hence then the relationship with Wink started. Hmm. And Wink, you, you two were strangers when you read Jen's essay. And uh, you have said that it made you feel less alone. I want to read a passage from that first letter to her. Whenever I come across a highly touted conversation about race in the media, it always seems to be a conversation among the same handful of people echoing the same boilerplate script written for a public audience. All the while, these individuals act as though they were, are speaking for whatever race they happen to belong to and corrupt the English language for their own specific agenda. You go on to write, let's not forget, there is no one Black experience. There are over 40 million Black Americans. That means there are over 40 million different perspectives, life stories, and personalities. When you read Jen's essay, why did you feel alone in that view at that particular time? I have always known that no one is an avatar for a racial group, for their race. We're all individuals. We bring our unique perspectives, life stories, and experiences to life. And so when I read her essay, I felt that I was uh, reading the thoughts of a kindred spirit, someone who also felt disaffection, alienation from discourse in the public square about race. I certainly did. A short while before I read Jen's essay, I had this disturbing conversation and encounter with a family member. And this family member declared, Blackness is oppression. Nothing else matters. And that was like, I was like transported back to Yorktown in 1781 when the American patriots played, the world turned upside down, or maybe the British did. But the point is that that statement was so counter to all of my memories and childhood aspirations and family blessings. So I felt, I, I just felt disaffected from that statement. And it, I was primed to uh, receive into my heart and into my, uh, my soul discomfort and disaffection from someone else who felt the same way as I did. So yeah, I immediately saw that Jen was someone who saw and prized the individual, who recognized that there was something going on here in terms of framing of language, manipulation of people that was ultimately counterproductive and destructive. I've always been anti-dogma. And when I read Jen's account, that struck me as, as the epitome of, of, of imposition of dogma. 
dogma bad, <laughs> individual good. <laughs> I want to get to dogma, dogma in a moment because some of the paragraphs uh, in your letters about dogma, oh my gosh, it was like a complete relief to me to read because I feel very much the same way as you do. But but first, yeah. Wink and Jen, you speaking of individuals, you both have very unique life experiences that you brought to this correspondence. Jen, as you've said, you're a China scholar. You've spent a lot of time living overseas. And Wink, you came of age in Virginia as part of what you call the New South. Could you both just talk a little bit about how these experiences influenced your views on race? Well, in my case, and, and my son reminded me of this uh, two weeks ago when we were in Hawaii, I really do, in a sense, span uh, an age. I am a part of what I consider the a nomad generation. I was literally born in the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, in a segregated all-Black hospital. And then when I came home from the hospital, I, I lived on Twyman Road, where everyone was a Twyman. So my entire social world was Black from birth until, let's say, uh, third grade, the age of eight. But what's ironic is I had no sense of race. Because if everyone is race, you don't think about that. You think about things that are more important, like one's character. I remember distinctly attending a segregated all-Black school in first and second grade, and never once did someone mention Blackness or Black, that we were of a, a certain race. It was only with public school desegregation that one was hit full force with the legacy of Jim Crow segregation. But the point is, the point is, I recognized that what was most important about a person was their own uh, personality traits, their aspirations, their ambitions. And so together, I and my classmates uh, throughout the 1970s created a new South. We actually ended centuries of social isolation. So for example, my father, who graduated from high school in the 1950s, could never call a white Virginian classmate. On the other hand, I was usually the only Black kid in my class, and I was very ambitious and very bright and learned to engage the outside world with comfort and security, ambition and self-confidence. And my classmates in return learned to see me as wink, not as some caricature or stereotype or avatar for my race. And that was a beautiful thing. That was a beautiful thing, particularly in a county that literally was the site of civil war battles, that literally but at the capital of the Confederacy. We changed hearts and minds on a day-to-day -day basis in the classroom. So that's why I refer to it as the New South, because by the time 1980 came, people were completely different in my county, my Southern county, and how we understood race. And so it pains my soul to see re retrogression, to see us kind of going back in a sense in the year 2020 of all things. It's crazy to me that we're embracing things like all black residential spaces, all black safe spaces, all black graduation ceremony. It's, it's, it, it, I don't know. It seems like uh, the things I learned in my formative years, the importance of seeing the person and engaging the larger world have in a sense been turned on their head. And so when I heard that expression from a relative, blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. I was, as I mentioned earlier, primed to uh, receive uh, wisdom from my kindred spirit, Jennifer. 
And clearly my experience is, is slightly different than, or not slightly, a lot different than Wink. But two things in particular for me, my, you know, I grew up in a, in a military family. My father, I write about this in the book, my father's best friend growing up was the first, one of the first black test pilots in the Air Force. And I just saw a lot of diversity growing up within the Air Force. And then my father took a position in what's now called Myanmar. At the time, it was called Burma. I went to an international school. And my entire life was, I mean, I hung out with Burmese and Filipinos and Malaysians. And so, and I loved it. I loved learning about their cultures. I mean, we would go to Japanese tea ceremonies and wear, you know, an obi, or we would go and hang out with Filipinos and eat the weird, you know, eggs that still have the, I don't know what it's called. They'll know, <laughs> they'll laugh at me now. But I mean, it just, that, to me, that was living, that was life, letting to knowing these experiences. And, and what was so cool to me was as an American, these international environments that I lived in were a microcosm, I thought at least, of America. I mean, we are the one country that is literally made up of every part of the world. And you live in these countries like China or Burma, they're very homogenous outside of our international cliques where we were very heterogeneous. And so I just, I valued that so much. I valued those stories. And again, when I came back and saw that we were segregating and not embracing that, that's where I, that's where I asked myself, did, did I miss something? What changed? And maybe it was maybe maybe I just you know again my experience was maybe so abnormal that I came at it from a, a perspective that wasn't your average. But I just I thought I always found diversity as truly the foundational beauty of America. When I came back and saw how diversity was being manipulated in ways that I didn't understand, that is what really drove my curiosity. And and throughout both of your correspondence, there's this constant effort to complicate the narrative over and over again, be more specific, you know, be, be more about the individual, be more about the u- unique experiences. How do we talk about this in a way that is getting past a lot of these kind of overarching stereotypes? And one of the ways that you do that is is through language. And Wink, early on in the letters, you made a point of letting Jen know you want to move beyond slogans. You didn't, for instance, want to hear about white privilege. Um, a lot of your passages, as I as I've told you, about dogma and about language really hit home for me. So I, when I used to work in the newsroom in 2020, during that racial reckoning, one of the things I argued about in the newsroom is I, I don't think we should use phrases like white fragility or lived experience on air because they're dogmatic and highly political, but also because they've been stripped of meaning by constant overuse. Talk to me a bit about your stance that you take towards such language. Well, it's, it's, it's plain. Dogmatic words, such as the ones you've mentioned, they are role-less resolution terms. So what they do is, rather than enhance one's comprehension and understanding of the world, they collapse one's cognitive ability. One, in a sense, becomes dumbed down, to use a phrase in an argument by my, my good friend, Isabella Tabarowski. And so when you dumb down people, you render them vulnerable to binary thinking, to black and white thinking, to racist, anti-racist thinking. Uh, and that's not reality. That's not the human condition. The human condition is nuanced and complex beyond belief. Beyond belief. I mean, three examples. 
In the world of slogan words, how often do you get an appreciation for the generational differences within Black American families? I mean, in my own family, I have a father who's approaching, let's say, 90, who only knew racial segregation through high school and could never call a white Virginian classmate. To his son, me, who grew up in an age where opportunity expanded and where the mission in life was to engage the larger world, to live counter to caricatures and stereotypes. To my children, who now live in a world where kentercloth is embraced at graduation ceremonies as a sign of Black pride, when in fact that was the fashion garb of African slave owners and slave traders who are raised in associations and organizations that are socially exclusive, shall we say, based upon race. So there's a, there's, a, there's a great tidal wave there among generations. And you never see that complexity in slogan words. White supremacy doesn't get you there. White privilege doesn't get you there. White fragility doesn't get you there. Marginalization doesn't get you there. Intersectionality doesn't get you. None of those phrases address those real-life on-the-ground experiences. And it's so ironic, Tara. It's so ironic. An ideology which professes to believe in the lived experience is nonetheless blind to the ultimate lived experience of all of us, which would be family dynamics across generations. Isn't that something? Yeah, and so I think in short, dogma is so low resolution. It's blind to lived experiences, ironically. It dumbs us down. It narrows our field of perception and comprehension it renders us vulnerable to manipulation. And so that's one of the reasons I enjoyed the book. It's because I hope to, you've heard of the Overton window. Well, I call this kind of the cognitive window. I hope to, by rejecting slogan words and dogma, we can keep that cognitive window open just a little bit more. That's my thought. <laughs> <laughs> I also think the current conversation, um, and this is a point that gets made in the book as well, is that the, the current conversation takes race as a proxy for class. And there's a there's a, a moment in the book where, um, Jen, I think you'd been reading Ta-Nehisi Coates, and, and in one of your letters, you said, well, I didn't grow up in the ghetto. And Wink, you said, well, neither did I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was one of my favorites. <laughs> right. Why do you, I think he came back, he's like, why do you think I did? <laughs> right. <laughs> So so how does this kind of current racial conversation in the states um erase class differences which are which are incredibly important to our day-to-day lives? Do you want to take that chin? Actually, wait, you 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 go first. I'll follow up. You got it. Yeah. Well, you know, I I have my theories. Some of them come out in the book. Uh one theory is that um for whatever reason, and maybe it's discrimination in the past, but there's this very strong sense of self rooted in blackness among black Americans. I think according to a recent Pew Research survey, 76% of black Americans consider their blackness as their sense of self extremely important or very important. Only a minority, 24%, consider it of no importance or little importance. So as a result, you have a market group that's primed to see life through the prism and the filter of race exclusively. And so I think that some of these um, dogmatic terms and slogan words skillfully take advantage of that mindset among Black Americans. And it's an easy thing to do, right? If 76% of the people are prepositioned 
to believe blackness is everything to one's sense of self or very important, then they're not going to see class as much, even though class is a certain reality. And sadly, for the 24% for whom blackness is of no value or little value to your sense of self, they're outnumbered. They're outgunned. So in a typical family, you might have four or five people who, rah, rah, 1619 Project, rah, rah, critical race theory, rah, rah, Tommy Hassey Coates. And if you're the one uncle or the one son who dissents, sometimes it's just easier to keep your, your, your mouth shut and to preserve peace and, and harmony in the family. So what happens is the larger world gets a distorted view of the complexity within Black American families. And that's one of the things I hope I expose, I expose uh, in this book, that you know we have a lot of um, uh, repression and suppression of dissident views and opinions, I think, sometimes in Black American families, uh, for those reasons, that it's easy for the 76% to uh, be louder and more vocal than the 24%. So things we know to be true about class or just not aired because it undercuts, quote unquote, black solidarity. To paraphrase uh, someone we had on one of our podcasts earlier, uh, there is that, that sense that if you speak your mind in an independent way, then you, you've, 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 you've harmed black solidarity. You've enabled white supremacy. I've heard all the arguments and I'm too old to carry it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, so I'll, I'll jump on that. I mean, I think what's really so interesting and it's very ironic is that by emphasizing class or for black Americans, you know, a lower class situation, there's actually a power play in that. So when you actually see uh, the resilience and the strength and the opportunities within black America, then you lose that narrative that has become so popular of, as Wink says, blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. There's another um, idea at play in the current racial conversation that I wanted to bring up as well, and that is standpoint epistemology. The the idea that you know you can only really inhabit your own standpoint that you can't possibly understand another person's experience. Which, like, honestly, if I took that to heart, I'd have to stop interviewing people. Um, how do you both grapple right. with that line of thinking? Oh, I mean, I think for me, for me, part of it is personality. I think my personality is such that. I'm very curious about other people. I tend to listen to understand what people are saying. And so I think for me, the standpoint argument doesn't, it doesn't ring true because, because part of understanding the human condition is embracing the idea that, that there are over 40 million Black Americans over 40 million different life stories. So you become wiser by learning as much as you can. If you only think that you can only understand your standpoint in life, then that's part of what I call that cognitive window being suppressed mm. even more and more, right? So yeah, so we're, we're, we're most intelligent and brilliant when we try to understand the world from as many different perspectives as possible. We are most dull-witted when we limit our understanding of the world to what we can only know and what we can only see. That's my thought. And I would say the dogmatic embrace of standpoint epistemology is so isolating and it's so lonely. 
I mean, from anyway, it doesn't matter race, color, economics. I mean, of course, you're never going to be able to fully jump into someone else's shoes. But I mean, the whole point in my, you know, my philosophy of life is getting to know the other person, getting to know where they come from, being able to feel where they're at and, and walk alongside them. And if we adhere to this idea of standpoint and epistemology, where we, you know, will never understand another point of view, then I don't even know why we're here. Why, why, why are we, we might as well just stop talking and live in our own little silos alone. And I don't think that that's the purpose of, of and this, life or connection. And this, and this book would never have been produced if Jen and I had lived by those, um, those scriptures, by those ideas, right? Because I never reached out to Jen. I would presume she'll never understand the black male perspective. Maybe I don't understand my perspective, but seriously, uh, she would never have reached out to me because she would have been too afraid to step outside her zone, quote unquote, to step outside her, uh, her, her lane. There's no white lane in life. There's no black lane in life. There's a human lane, lane in life. And I think Jen and I are richer and smarter and more wise because we refuse to be hemmed in by those artificial guardrails of racial lanes. You know, throw away the racial lanes, throw away the racial categories, let people live and breathe fully, take in the abundance of the universe. Racial boxes only, once again, they only make you more and more dull with it because you know less and less about the world. You know more about the world, the more you reach out to the larger world. So that's my, my thought, that's my thought. And, and notice, Tara, that thinking, that way of thinking, came about because of my unique generation. I witnessed how the psychology of race blew up tremendously, right, from 100% Black world to a fully desegregated world. And so that's how I came to see the world. And I'm not going to change in, in my generation. My fear is young kids growing up are being trained to only think of themselves in terms of their racial boxes and their racial caricatures. And I just think that's the most dreadful thing we can do to little kids. It really is. You should see some of these children's books, Tara, at Barnes and Noble. You should see the kind of books that are winning children's books awards. You would, you would, you would cringe because you would think, where's the expansiveness of life? Where's the, um, where's the sense that you can be all you can be? I, I think in some ways, Little black kids in Virginia in the 1970s were far more optimistic about life than little black, black kids might be today in, say, California. Wow. And I mean, so much of, of what's going on in the racial discourse right now is about the weight of history. And one of the incredible things about this book is, is how well-read you both are and how much history oh, thank you. Thank you, you bring. You bring to all of this, and Wink, I know you in particular love genealogy, and um, there there is talk in this book about your own family history in America, which includes both slaveholders and slaves. And you've talked in the past about, um, I believe it, the the Eric Smith event, um, talking about how discovering white people in your own family tree broadened your feeling of being part of the American family. Um, and how there's an idea here that could be helpful, and that is of being old Americans and how this may help heal some of the racial divisions in the U.S. Can you elaborate on that for our listeners? Sure, sure. Um, 
sadly, as uh, a famous uh, captain said on the Enterprise, you shouldn't let the horrors of the past impair your judgment in the present. But what happens is because of the horrors of things like slavery and Jim Crow, we allow those horrors to, dis to d distort our um, sense of the possible in the present. So to me, the power of gene genetic genealogy is so wonderful because now you don't just think of yourself as 100% Black American, as many Black Americans do to my uh, befuddlement. You recognize that there's so many different strands of yourself that make you possible. So, for example, in my own case, I feel that these people who helped to create the American story, who helped to create this great country, are blood kin. Who knew? I didn't know until, uh, you know, the last decade or so. And I just think that opens up your mind. It opens up your heart. So when you see George Washington in D.C., or when you read about the Emancipation Proclamation, you recognize that these are just not alien white figures from outer space, as uh, Kendi might suggest. But you'd recognize that these are not, yeah, I, I said it, Tara, I said, but you might recognize that these are not, these are not just aliens, white people. These are actually people who share your chromosomes, who share your genes, who help make you possible. And to me, it's harder to hate someone if you recognize their blood kin. And isn't that a magic key? As long as Black Americans think of themselves as 100% Black Americans, they can envision these white founding fathers as alien beings. But the moment you look at your DNA and you recognize, oh my Lord, I have the same chromosome 13 as Robert E. Lee or uh, Peter Montague, I think it just changes your sense of self. You recognize that you're closer in, in your genetic family than you might otherwise be aware of or wish to, uh, to consider. But yeah, I think it's a great possibility think of yourself as old Americans, because then you become more invested in that common one American story. We've got, to, we've got to work towards telling one American story, Tara. We can't tell five or 10 racial stories. That's not going to fly. That's not going to make for a coherent national identity. You've got to have national unity to be a nation. Otherwise, you're just a bunch of quarreling racial groups destined for self-destruction. And for, for those listening at home, we we were just referencing uh, an essay by Ibram X. Kendi from mm -hmm. his, I believe, from his university days. Um, this uh -huh. is the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, which referred to white people as as aliens. So that's that's what we were referring to there. Um, just gonna, I was going to add on to that. You know what? When Wink and I started to write, started to get to know each other, he asked that I do my DNA and find my black cousins, which I did. And it has been such an amazing journey. As a matter of fact, one of my black cousins is a writer, is an author. And I think if I were to do diversity training, which I don't even know if that's even necessary. I mean, I don't, diversity needs, doesn't, you don't even need to be trained to be diverse. But what I got out of this was I would have everyone do this and see, I mean, and that just, increases this sense of empathy and understanding where you can see the the good and the bad and the ugly and all of that wrapped into all of our DNA. And I think in that way, we are 
embracing our diversity, but through our, our, our common heritage. And that was beautiful. Throughout this project, what do you think for each of you was the biggest thing that you changed your mind on? Mm. That's a good question. I, okay, I think I'll As start. Think. Wait, yeah, you yeah, start. Yeah. Yes, okay. yes. Uh, you, you kind of already touched on this, Tara. Uh, I came into this conversation a little bit uh, battle weary, weary, excuse me, after the diversity training. So I was unsure. Yeah, I, 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 and we're we're in a current climate where we are afraid to talk. I mean, you 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 say the wrong word and you lose your job, or you know, you lose friends and and even family members. So I came into it wanting to be sensitive to the current dogmatic climate, and that's where you know I said, well, may you know maybe there's a kernel of truth in all of this, you know, and I do think that there's a kernel of truth in some of the stuff that we talk about around you know in the in this dogmatic world of critical race theory and, and whatnot. I mean. Jim Crow, slavery, it happened. You know, we there's nothing we shouldn't ignore that. And that's one thing, by the way, just as a, a tangent that really upsets me is people say, oh, well, we're not doing history. Oh, no, we are doing history. But what we're doing with history is not only looking at the bad, but looking at the possibility in history. And so that was really something that I think spoke to me a lot. But to get back to your your question, I think what changed me the most was we was it was so refreshing to be able to have a, a, a conversation without the slogan words, without the fear, and to be able to ask these questions that I otherwise would not have asked because of uh, uh, of fear, given how we are currently discussing race in America. And so Wink's one of Wink's big things, and and this is what I really took to heart was. I, I would c complain to him about, well, if I put this on Twitter, or if I do this, or if I say this, and he goes, and it's just like, this is totally deadpan, has nothing to do with race. He's like, why do you engage bullies? Like, I don't engage bullies. And as simple as that was, as simple as that is, I was like, yeah, why? And that to me, I think was very affirming and 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 it gave it, it gives me at least in our conversation and hopefully our conversation will impact others conversations gives me hope for how we communicate in the future in my case in my case and i'll talk about this i think in the postscript actually at the very end of the book so i came into the book uh very much someone who is an introvert a proud introvert and someone who values Harmony, family harmony. So over the years, my family suspected uh, that I may have had some nonconforming opinions and views, but because of my personality, I didn't pound the drums about that. So over the course of the book and towards the end of the book, as my uh, family became more aware of my, my views, the biggest change for me was kind of breaking free from racial fear within one's family. You know, we often talk about racial fear of expression on Twitter or social media. Well, you don't talk so much about the Twitter effect within the four corners of your home in Black American families. Remember, it goes back to the whole 76%, 24% distinction. 
So by the end of the book, I wrote an essay and my wife read it and she was dumbfounded, which is sort of strange because we've been married for over 30 years, but I really removed the, the, the filters and just spoke plainly. I had reached the point after years of writing with Jen where I just really just wanted to write life plainly. And so I think for me, that was the biggest change was beginning the book as almost in the closet as a nonconformer in a Black American family to someone who comfortably embraced his opinions and who he was by the end of the effort. And family accepting, well, that's just who he is. And we're not going to change him. We're not going to struggle session him to buy more kindy books. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and and just to close, both of you, I know that your correspondence continues. You continue to write letters to one another. What are you writing about these days? What are the topics that are most on your mind at this present moment? Jenny's ready. Take it away, Jen. I'm so excited. I'm so excited about this. Uh, Tara, we, we, we suggested, we mentioned earlier about the children's books that he sees in Barnes and Nobles that are really just so race-based. And so we suggested to our publisher, how about taking letters and, and, and writing children's books and showing how these two, of course, there'll be little Jen and little Wink, but two sure. people who are so different get along so well in a, in through a correspondence. So our next adventure is bringing this, and it, it is an adventure because we don't really know how to write. <laughs> Wink and I are going back and forth on how to write for children. This is a new adventure for us. But I'm so passionate about that because I really think that's where this begins. I think if we're really going to break this cycle of racial segregation, it has to start with how we speak and how we think as children and how we educate children to see this larger world. And so that is our, our next uh, adventure together. And, and I sense there's a great hunger for that. I think everyone I've mentioned the idea to has been just enthusiastic without prompting. One or two family members have sort of, uh, you know, shrugged their shoulders and said, oh, well, whatever, non-conforming wink. But I think for the most part, there is uh, there's hunger for a book like that. We've got to we've got to recapture the magic, at least I, as I think, of when racial barriers came down and those years when races interacted and, and became one one community, one sense of self. I, I just I think back to my childhood. I went from a place that was all black to junior high and high school where kids were creating not a black school, not a white school, but you were creating a school. And that that mindset is so important if we want to create not a black America or a white America, but one America. Mm. Well, Jen Wink, uh, thank you so much for this book. Reading these letters was such a relief and it, I felt like I could breathe again. So thank you so much for your writing and thank you for the conversation today. It sounds like your cognitive window has expanded. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Hold up. 